Kasachiro's Boys. This is your co-host, Tim Amatuli. And I'm Chris Cote. And we've reached the 90s, baby. This man who's been making movies since the 40s is making movies in the decade we lit we were born in. I wonder <laughs> how he feels about the 90s. Maybe we'll find out from this movie. I don't know. We, th- this movie will give us insights into many parts of his psyche, uh, I guess. Yeah, insights into Kurosawa that we never wanted. <laughs> we're here today discussing, if we can... Akira Kurosawa's Dreams from 1990. I keep wanting to call it Dreams, but it was indeed called Akira Kurosawa's Dreams on the app. And they are. Yeah, that that title makes me so mad because it's literally <laughs> like, I know it's just like it's supposed to mean Akira Kurosawa presents his film Dreams, but when you call it Akira Kurosawa's Dreams, you're giving away the game. That's that's all it is. <laughs> it's just dreams that this guy had. This is going to be another difficult one for us to talk about because it is just eight short you really can't even call them shorts. They're vignettes. Yeah, they're not short stories. Some of them aren't even stories. They're not really self-contained narratives. Like, there isn't really a beginning or end to all of them. There isn't some, but, like, it's mostly pretty loose. It's more about the dreamlike atmosphere and feeling rather than telling a concrete plot. But, like, other anthologies usually have, like, a framing device or they have another overarching thing going through it. Not this one. It's just intertitles that say, I had a dream, I had another dream. The overarching thing is that he was young and then he got older. And they're all about him. Akira Kurosawa. I think they vaguely are supposed to follow his life. I don't know when he got caught up in a volcano blowing up. But... Oh, the World War II one happens before the nuclear one. And the feeling weird at the end of your life one happens at the end of the film. And the ones about being a kid happen at the beginning. I'm saying in the vaguest sense it is chronological. But, like, that's it. And it is vague. Yeah. <laughs> if suddenly Dream 7 was he was a kid again, I was going to say, like, fuck everything. Like, this is nothing. But... <laughs> I think it is kind of chronological. There's a through line, but there isn't a story in that besides, oh, yeah, certainly, I, yeah, yeah, like no. you said, I just got old. Yeah, yeah no, no story at all. <laughs> but there is a through line. And like, there is a guy in every one of them. And that guy is presumably Akira Kurosawa. Mostly played by the actor Akira Tarao, who has been in a couple of these, uh, which I guess makes sense casting Akira as Akira. Mostly distinguishable by the iconic hat that he's wearing that Kurosawa wears in, like, every behind the scenes. I was surprised he wasn't wearing sunglasses because that's always what Kurosawa's wearing. Yeah, I guess that would look bad on film. But in uh, in Dream 5, he finally puts the hat on. And I was like, oh my god, there he is. There's the obvious symbol that we're talking about Akira Kurosawa if you haven't figured it out already. <laughs> this is actually the only Kurosawa film that he wrote 100% by himself. Yeah, that reflects badly on him. <laughs> When I saw that, I was like, oh, that's rough. <laughs> if I had made some of the best films ever, and the only one that I wrote myself was this one, I'd feel a little bit better. <laughs> it's not really an equivalent. I know I said that Dodeska Den was his most experimental, I thought, but looking back, I really do think it's actually this one. Some of the imagery, I mean, it's super crazy, super wild, which we'll get into, but also just, like, the structure of it is like, what? Huh. Dodeska Den, you could be tricked into thinking you were following a plot. Not in this one. <laughs> But I do think that the concept is actually fantastic. I would love to see another filmmaker's version of this to be like, what are like these images that come into their heads in their subconscious? Like, I think that that's actually really cool. It's just a weird way to do it. I feel like these are probably all ideas that he couldn't turn into full length movies. So then he just did this. <laughs> I believe that. I have some some stuff to say about that. I did not realize they were going to be from throughout his life. I thought they were just going to be like eight things all involving adults doing adult things. But like the beginning is very clearly his childhood. <laughs> like, and then it moves on from there. So yeah, it's just uh, his life in retrospective in eight extremely weird and uncomfortable dreams. How else is he going to tell it? 
Yeah, Kurosawa's dreams presented by Warner Brothers. We're getting really Western in here. Like, a lot of Western influence presented by Steven Spielberg. Lucas and Coppola helped out. ILM, Industrial Light and Magic's Lucas's effects place, did a lot of the effects for this movie. There's a lot of East meets West going on here, which I guess is a sign of the times by the time he's making this in 90. 990, yeah. No, globalization. This is one of the consequences. <laughs> it was weird at the beginning when the names were just written in the Latin alphabet. <laughs> There's many crazy names in here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I don't I don't want to get to it until we yeah, get no, to it. Yeah, no, yeah, we'll save it. So the plot summary is that there are eight dreams. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we won't, we won't really do a plot summary. We'll just kind of move one by one because it's the only way to really talk about this. And I don't have too much to talk about for the first one. Dream 1, Sunshine Through the Rain, which follows young Akira Kurosawa, who goes out into a forest during the rain, and he sees a fox wedding, and he comes back, and his mom's like, you shouldn't have seen those foxes. Uh, They came here, and they said you have to kill yourself. Son, you have to kill yourself. Or, and this is even harder, you have to go apologize. Yeah. (laughs) And even if you do, expect to kill yourself anyway. Yeah, they'll still probably have you kill yourself. And the ending is ambiguous. Let me tell you behind the curtain. I'm pretty sure in that dream he doesn't make it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's one of those dreams where I think he woke up before he reached the end. Did you read the thing in Wikipedia that said this was meant to look exactly like his childhood home? Yes, this is a near recreation of his childhood home that he's here. On the gate, it actually says Kurosawa on it. I find that deeply uncomfortable. <laughs> it is a pretty bad portrayal of his mother. Yeah. Yeah, right? <laughs> In his childhood, he actually died. Yes, uh, Akira Kurosawa famously killed himself in childhood. <laughs> so this one sets up the film. I like that it, you know it starts with rain, very Kurosawa thing mm-hmm. to have like the weather be involved, which happens again later. And also ending with the customary Kurosawa color film rainbow, which is probably the most iconic image from this film. Yeah, really, really nice. The thing it sets up is that after the initial scene, which is kind of ugly, it's very pretty. He goes to the forest and it's beautiful. The trees are huge and they're red. And it's, everything is framed really nice. The whole film is very, very pretty, except when it's intentionally ugly. Oh, it's gorgeous. Right off the bat, the cinematography in this shot by the same guys who did Kagimusha and some of these other ones. I think the film stock is really, really nice. It looks really well preserved and the colors are so vibrant and he's working with so much creative imagery. Production-wise, this really was like, let's let Kurosawa just run wild and do whatever he wants. He's 80 years old. We'll let him just make what he wants to make. So the kid finds the foxes, which are people in fox masks. And you can see their eyes, and it's very scary. It's very weird, yeah. And uh, It really kind of freaked me out. And it definitely sets up the pace of the film in that there's going to be a lot of time where it's just going to be people very slowly moving, and you're just going to sit there and watch it. Yeah, there's, like, some things that happen in a lot of the dreams, but not all of them, which is kind of frustrating. Like, this is one of the many dreams that features, like, an encounter with a spirit, or some kind of spirits. Or if they're not spirits, then they're just supposed to be actual foxes. I don't know. He's dreaming. But an encounter is something supernatural. He encounters these people who are, you know, they don't look normal. They're wearing these fox masks. They move very weird. They're doing some kind of ceremony. That felt very Japanese. But, yeah, I was watching that. I was like, oh, I, uh, I have nothing <laughs> in my experience that could have prepared me to see what I'm currently seeing. The foxes keep, like, looking aggressive every, like, <laughs> couple seconds, just frightening. It's so long. Literally, like, I'll say right up, the, up front, this should have been, 1990, it should have been a 90-minute movie. He, it definitely could have been a 90-minute movie. This movie drags in almost every dream, and I think a lot of the dreams are good, but I think every single one of them, I do hit a point where I'm like, I really just want to get through this here. Like, this is too much. Yeah, I like slow filmmaking. Some of it was a bit much. 
And it's also like a thing with anthology films in general is that they're, they're kind of by their nature a bit exhausting because you're constantly like getting introduced to new characters, new scenarios. You have to readjust yourself. You don't get enough time. Yeah, every one of them has rules and you have to learn the rules of each little story as it happens over and over and over again. Yeah, and because it's out of our world, it's unnatural. Literally anything can happen, so you never really know what to expect, which is cool, but it takes its toll on you. It makes the movie feel even longer than it is. Yeah, Kagemusha felt shorter than this. <laughs> the mother tells him to kill himself, then he walks into a... Well, he's, like, walking away, then you see the house, and there's a hard cut to him in a field of flowers, and it's extremely pretty. This is the first time you really see that color stock come through. It's obscene <laughs> how beautiful all the flowers and the colors look. And then it cuts to behind him, and you see the rainbow and the mountains in the distance. Really, really nice. I mean, it makes sense why it's the most iconic shot. It's nice, and then, yeah, we just kind of fade out, and then we get the intertitle that we're going to see every single time, where it says, I had another dream, dot, 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 and then it introduces oh, the next one. That wasn't in my copy. Really? It didn't say that? Yeah. It does not say I had another dream. It just, it goes, just says it the just next like one. It just fades out and fades into another... Fades to black, and then on the on the screen is the next title. Oh. I don't know why that's different. Well, it says it says it says I had another dream dot 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 and then the next title, like. Nope. But I didn't see that once. Maybe maybe it was just the your the way that your subtitles were done. But I watched it on Amazon Prime. I don't know. Okay, I have the Criterion disc of it. Yeah, maybe they cut that. For I don't know. <laughs> cut for time. I cut wish. That for time in a film. <laughs> yeah. I uh, know. I de- I definitely am almost certain I didn't see that on the the streaming version, but. Whatever, it, that's not much of a difference. Yeah, that that's not going to make or break the experience. I was pretty upset that they didn't resolve the story in the first one, but that, you know, sets up how you're going to feel for the rest of the stories. I was like, oh, does he die? <laughs> yeah, don't expect much resolution. Some of these definitely do have a resolution in them, and some of them really don't. But the next one is like, I actually think might have been a better story, but it feels so similar to the first one that it makes me angry. It feels so similar. I thought they were all going to be like this, and then they weren't, and that was also upsetting. So the next one is The Peach Orchard, which has the young Akira Kurosawa again. He's bringing in food to these girls, and then he's like, oh, I thought there was one more of you. And then he sees this other girl who runs out of the house, and he chases after her. And he winds up where a peach orchard used to be, but now is no longer. And then basically the whole story is just that the spirits yell at him for cutting down the trees, and he's like, but I didn't. And they're like, oh, yeah, you're right. And then they're like, all right, now we're going to dance for you. Yeah, and the, the the third spirit blossom dance, and then you see the trees, and then you see the girl running through them, and then they disappear, but one is left. Yeah, she's the spirit of the last peach tree, and then you see all the stumps of the other trees, which again, really, really beautiful, pretty cool imagery. It's like a staircase of grass mounds. Yeah, the terrace set. The composition, the colors of all the people against the green, and the dance itself, it's really, really pretty and cool, but again, it feels a lot like the last one. It is annoying that his boy encounters extremely strange-looking, unusual spirits. Another dance and singing that just goes on for a really long time, the way that the fox would... I think it's more visually interesting than just the foxes constantly walking a few steps and then stopping and turning their heads. Yeah, the fact that they had musicians and they were dancing and then they become the blossoms and the petals come through, the petals are really cool. And this one actually had a message, which I could not discern from Sunshine Through the Rain, because there, it was about, you know, the fact that they cut down these trees and everything. They're destroying nature. So I'm laughing at the message of Sunshine Through the Rain, which is that uh, don't intrude on the foxes or, I guess, nature, and then you'll have to kill yourself. Yeah, because they were like, well, you're right, kid. We shouldn't blame you for it. You didn't cut down these trees. We know you loved them, but you can't have a peach tree festival and also cut down all the peach trees. Yeah, they're celebrating at his house the Peach Festival Day with the dolls, which are supposed to represent the spirits, which the spirits themselves find offensive, essentially. 
the stuff in his house is interesting the way it was shot the house feels like very cavernous and like weird like uh, there was like a weird vibe inside the house it didn't really look like an actual house it was like stylized in a cool way which i appreciated but then he leaves then he goes to the beaches that's really all i have to say about the entire thing i honestly have even less to say about the third dream the blizzard I feel like it's out of order because this should have been at the point in Kurosawa's life where he was making Dersu Yuzala because that's what I felt like I was in. This is a more intense blizzard than anything that Arseniev and Dersu ever dealt with. The only explanation I saw for this was that he used to go mountaineering when he was younger. So this is that. And encountering the spirit because the whole story here is mountaineers are stuck in a blizzard. They encounter a common Japanese folklore spirit of the snow woman, the Yuki Ona, which is famously done in Masaki Kobayashi's Kwaidan, and I think is done less effectively here. She tells, like, the snow is warm, the ice is hot. That's like a real thing with hypothermia. Towards the end, when you're about to die, you'll start feeling really warm. This is like another one that it just, the beginning, it drags so long. It's just walking through snow. And they're like, where's camp? And we're like, we don't know. It takes like, yeah, like 15 minutes to get to the point. I legitimately thought it was going to end without anyone saying anything. <laughs> I was like ready for it. I was like, maybe that's just it. At the very beginning, I was like, oh, this is interesting. Who are these guys? What are they doing? And then a couple minutes later, I was like, oh, we're not going to find out. <laughs> I was like, oh, this isn't interesting at all, actually. No, I was like, well, at the very beginning, I was like, oh, this is cool. Like, it looks cool. They're in the snow. Despite the fact that this has a spirit in it, this doesn't feel dreamlike at all. It just feels like a normal short. Yeah, they're just like in a, it just feels like actual guys in an actual blizzard. Everything else has like weird cuts the way that dreams work where you're suddenly in another place and it doesn't feel weird or there's weird imagery. Here, the only thing that's weird is that there's a spirit, which is not inherently weird for Japanese storytelling. Well... There's like some cutting between like suddenly you're looking at someone's hand with the rope and then suddenly you're looking at someone's face and the panting is strange and the audio is kind of not exactly met. I don't know. It just doesn't feel much like a dream. Like you're like, I'm going to make a movie about dreams. It's like, this is not what I think of. This feels like a scene that he wanted to do in Dersu Uzala and didn't. I found this more effective than like the Weeping Demon. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he just really wanted to do a snowstorm again. <laughs> He's like, I get to do rain all the time. I only got to do snow like once. But uh, yeah, it's the blizzard. Eventually they talk. I didn't realize the guy at the head of the line was the guy standing in for Kurosawa until we talked about it here. Yeah, from this dream on, we'll have Akira Terao as... He's called I in the credits of the oh, movie, that's which is cool. extremely literal. No, we get it, Kurosawa. It's about you. <laughs> you literally don't ever get to really see a good look at his face, so you don't realize it until retroactively you're like, well, it's not the kid, and this guy is in every other story, so it must be him. They find the camp, which looks completely like it will not it help. Looks it looks destroyed. They walk towards it. They keep falling. At all. It was like <laughs> 10 feet from them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's not surprising. Well, that was the blizzard. I, I actually, I didn't mind it. I like the snow and the weird vibe. I felt like I had hypothermia during me. And I was like, I'm feeling warm. and just want to go to bed. <laughs> Whatever. Next one was the tunnel, which I loved. I love this one. I thought the tunnel was great. Yeah. So good. Super good. <laughs> like That like gave me more faith in the film as a film. From this dream onward, I think the film gets substantially better. I thought that, and then I stopped thinking that. As a whole, it becomes, I think, much more engaging, and I feel like he does more with the imagery from now on, and he actually has, like, things to say again, whereas, like, these first few, I get a little bit of meaning out of it, but not too much. The tunnel is about a military commander who survived the war, but his whole platoon was wiped out, and he's feeling survivor's remorse for making it out when they didn't. He walks through this tunnel, and one soldier comes out, who is actually uh, Chobo. Ah, uh, he was. That guy's such a good actor. I love him. I really love the design of the soldiers here. They're all blue, but they're in their full, normal garb. Green military fatigues. 
Yeah, no, it looked uh, great. The whole thing with the guy comes out and he's a spirit and you can tell he's dead, but he doesn't know he's dead. He's like, what are you talking about? I'm dead. I, I saw my family. And the general's, no, I remember you thinking of that, but that was just a dream. You woke up after that and then you died shortly afterward in my arms. And he's just very upset. They give a salute before he walks back. Rules. Super good. I feel like this is one that you really actually do get a character arc in it where this is like a man healing, you know, in a weird way. You don't get to tell them that they're dead. You recognize that they're dead, but do they? And now it's like he's being forced to actually do that. And then the kid walks back and then the entire platoon comes out, which is another really crazy image. Yeah, really cool. The sound is really good. The sound's well designed as they exit the tunnel. Mm. They're like, yeah, ready to, ready to serve. And he's like, I don't know how to tell you this, but you're all dead. And I feel so bad. I wish I could have died with you. But now I have to like live through the pain of living too. And that sucks too. And then he you know, commands them to turn away. He reassumes his role to get them to accept themselves, which I think is great. Yeah. When he's walking through a tunnel, that's very cool. The only thing about this entire thing that I didn't get was the dog. Yeah, the dog is carrying grenades. Oh. I feel like it's a literalization of a bad memory bringing itself to the forefront of your mind, like just constantly yelling at him, attacking him. It's like something he doesn't want to think about, but it's actually just here and he can't escape it. They give the dog demon sounds, which I thought was cute when the dog first came out because he didn't look very angry. Oh, they look really angry. He looked angry at the end, but he didn't look all that angry at the beginning. <laughs> at the beginning, he's just kind of barking at him. And I was like, they're trying really hard to make him look evil. <laughs> I think the point in Kurosawa's life that this is channeling to an extent is when he was young, there was a major earthquake and his brother brought him through the destroyed town and he saw like all these dead bodies and dead animals and it taught him to look at death and accept it and understand it as a child. And I think that that's kind of the equivalent that I could make. It may have something to do with like the war as well because he lived through World War II. His friends could have gone for the war. He could have lost. It's a combination and he's also the quote-unquote commander of a lot of these film crews. And at this point, a lot of his people that he worked with for years are dead or really old, too. He's still going, working in 1990, which is wild. Speaking of wild, let's get to the craziest one, I think. Dream number five, Crows, guest starring Martin Scorsese as Vincent Van Gogh. That blew my <laughs> fucking mind. You mentioned that there was going to be a guest actor, and for some reason, I guess I read something else about something else, whatever, I thought it was going to be a different guy. So when it wasn't that guy, uh, Richard Gere, <laughs> when it was <laughs> Marty Scorsese, I was looking at him, I was like, that's not Richard Gere. Wait, that voice is extremely familiar. Oh my god, it's Marty. <laughs> it's Marty, and he's playing Vincent Van Gogh <laughs> for some reason. It's so crazy, why is he doing it? Why is it Martin Scorsese? He does he does an okay job. His voice is so obviously wrong. He's just doing his like own Italian voice. <laughs> He's also speaking English, not French. <laughs> yeah, which is also wild. The guy approaches him and says, like, are you Vincent Van Gogh in French? And he responds, like, why aren't you painting in English? <laughs> like you just... <laughs> I know, I was it was it's so weird to hear English all of a sudden. I'm pretty sure Martin Scorsese can like at least fake speak French. He can definitely speak Italian. <laughs> like Leading up to that, this is a story about a painter who winds up teleported into Vincent Van Gogh's works. It's basically a dream about a daydream of this guy talking to his idol. Obviously, we know Kurosawa loves painting. He wanted to be a painter before he wanted to be a filmmaker. So I can definitely see a very clear through line with that. And there's the hat and everything. He looks, I think, the most like Kurosawa in this one. We travel to a recreation of one of Van Gogh's bridge paintings, which is crazy. Like, they built this whole recreation of it or whatever, either in ILM or in person, and then they use it for, like, one shot. He's looking at all the paintings in the museum. First of all, those paintings would never be next to each other in the same, ex I mean, maybe in an exhibit, but that's, like, they're not normally next to each other. 
unguarded with one guy alone with them. Yeah, right? So that was something. I assume they're just recreations. But they cut to it, and I was like, oh, that's weird. The painting looks different, but it's still a painting. Maybe they did another painting of it, and then it moves. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> that's sick. They show the live version of the painting, but it's a still image for, like, five seconds, and then all of a sudden it starts moving like it was buffering. And it's like, oh, my God, wait, they recreated the painting, like, exactly. It rules. That is super cool. They did a really good job. Like, the only, I was just looking, I was like, oh, the breast strokes are off. And then it moves. Yeah, because it, it's like, oh this real God. life. Because it's just the way the grasses moan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they got all the colors, right? They did that whole set. It's crazy. He goes up and talks to some French woman. And in my head, I was like, oh, I'm glad they weren't racist to him. Like, they absolutely would have been if he was actually there. <laughs> uh, but they're not. Uh, they're just like, oh, you want to talk to Van Gogh? Oh, good luck. This whole section is just a bunch of recreations of Van Gogh paintings. And eventually, he's going to talk to him. And Van Gogh is really going to give, I think, advice to an artist that Kurosawa would want to give on. Where he's like, I'm just like a locomotive, you know. I just keep going. Like, I just got to keep painting. I have to paint. The, the sun tells me I must paint. And also, I cut my ear off yesterday because I couldn't get it right in a self-portrait. Yeah, that was wild. That's not the actual story. I mean, there's a bunch of versions of the story. But he doesn't cut his whole ear off, first of all. And from what I heard in class, I was an art history major behind the scenes in college. Pretty sure he cuts off just a bit of his ear and he mails it to his friend, Paul Gauguin, who's like a total dick and is put off by it. Those aren't related. He is an awful person, also is put off by this weird gesture. <laughs> but yeah, whatever. Kurosawa tells a version of the story that suits his purposes. He owed it to the mob. <laughs> Mario Scorsese, you know, gives his all to this performance. He looks close enough, considering the fact that he doesn't look anything like him. It's not the closest Van Gogh impression I've ever seen, but it's not the worst. Oh, not at all. <laughs> they give him the red beard and stuff, and they make it happen. <laughs> Petition for Redbeard remake starring Martin Scorsese. Oh, hell yeah. The advice is more or less like taking the world to the best of your ability, but then you have to work like hell to like actually make your artistic vision come true. Which is, you know, it's a message. Yeah, and then very dreamlike Van Gogh just disappears, and then Kurosawa himself winds up in a bunch of Van Gogh paintings, walking through them, and it's a crazy good effect. It looks really great. Yeah, it looks shockingly good. It's not... I mean, it's as perfect as it could be, considering what it is. Yeah. Yeah, there's no way to make it look identical unless he actually recreated every single painting the way he did in the beginning, but he wanted it to actually be like going through these paintings. Yeah, so we literally just put the character in the paintings using, like, the Industrial Light and Magic special effects team. I mean, it looks as good as it's ever going to look. Sometimes he'll walk behind a bit of painting if it structurally, like, would be in front of him. The only thing that looks bad is the fact that it's a human person on paint. But, like, it, it looks flawless otherwise. The effect that looks less good is when he finally does see Van Gogh again, and then all these crows appear to recreate Van Gogh's crow painting. Those crows look terrible, and there's a thousand of them. Yeah, I was not even... At this point, I was just like... What's going on? <laughs> I barely even noticed the crows. Then you see him in the museum again, and he's like, oh. So he kind of like wakes up, <laughs> and then that's it. It's over. And then we fade out, and we're like, wow, that was crazy. And then we see something even crazier, which is just Mount Fuji yeah. exploding. We're like, that was crazy, but it looked really good, and I enjoyed it. And then the next one is not like that. <laughs> yeah, the next one is, it's really crazy, but doesn't look quite as good. Yeah, the next one looks like total shit. <laughs> it's awesome. It's so awesome. It's cool. You know, it's fun. It's really fun. I get major Godzilla vibes from this stream, which is a big one for me. And the reason is because Godzilla director Ishiro Honda helped out and did the effects for that one. All the shots of the people running, it's straight out of every Godzilla movie, which I'm a Godzilla mega fan and would love to do a podcast on that one too, honestly. So I was totally jiving with it. It's a perfect little vignette for you. I just couldn't get over the fact that Mount Fuji exploding looked like shit. Explosion effects next to Mount Fuji. 
the way they explain it is that there's nuclear reactors on Mount Fuji, and now they're all blowing up one by one, which is like, why? Why? Who, who would do that? <laughs> yeah, at one point, like, part of it caves in, and then it doesn't, or I don't know, maybe I just wasn't understanding. The color of Mount Fuji changes rapidly throughout it. It's the volcano explosion, nuclear the holocaust all at once. I like how the Kira Kurosawa character is placed into it like he would be in a dream where he doesn't know what's going on. He's like, what's happening? <laughs> and everyone else around him knows what's going on. And then they're like, oh, it's the volcano idiot <laughs> and the nuclear reactors. Then everyone disappears. He's like, wait, where did they go? And they're like, they jumped in the water. Like, aren't you paying attention? This one is kind of like I live in fear, a big nuclear anxiety one. Yeah, I live in fear in 10 minutes. He winds up with a government official, a woman and two children. It's really the woman who's giving his thesis. They said that nuclear power was safe. The only thing that was dangerous was that human error could mess it up. So we had to make sure that we didn't. And now we did. And now we're all going to die. They lied to us. This is their fault. I would kill them myself if I could. And then the businessman is like, well, you're going to kill anyone. You should kill me because that's my fault. Sorry for peddling this lie. Oh, look at that. See all those colored gases? That's radiation. Yeah, these are different atoms. And this is how each of them will kill you. The first one gives you cancer. The second one gives you leukemia. The other one causes major birth defects. I really like stories like that, like Chernobyl or something. Like, I find nuclear disaster to be really, really scary when it's not about the bomb, but it's about, like, the radiation. And I love the way that Kurosawa envisions, like, how would we feel if we could actually see this invisible force? Because that's the thing that's so scary about it. You know, it's like, like carbon monoxide. You can't detect it with your eyes or your nose, but it'll kill you. How different would it be if we could see it? It's like, what are we breathing in? What are we doing all this? We're just seeing all this red smoke come around. And it's like, yeah, that's plutonium. And if you touch it a little bit of it, you'll die instantly. The businessman makes a little comment. He's like, stupid humans, they made it visible, but that won't stop it from killing them. <laughs> now you can just see it. What's the benefit? Now you know how you'll die. And then he runs into the ocean. This is a Kira Kurosawa's dreams, but this is a nightmare, this one. Yeah, very obviously a nightmare and not the only one. It's horrifying, but I really, really dig this one. Even though, like, Mount Fuji doesn't look that good, it felt like another one that actually had something to say. Nuclear energy bad. This was one of the only ones where I felt like was actually, like, perfectly paced and didn't have a lot of really slowly walking somewhere or watching other things do things. Well, I guess that would be hard to do with this setup. And uh, now that we've had the nuclear holocaust, what happens after? Another nuclear holocaust. Well, yeah, the, this is post-apocalyptic instead of apocalyptic. It's the weeping demon. <laughs> This is something. Something. The Kurosawa stand-in is in, like, this wasteland. Yeah, it's kind of like a volcanic ash valley, kind of like at the end of Ron. It's, it's kind of like that, but if it was in front of a destroyed city. And then he's walking along, and he realizes he's being followed in the smoke, and he discovers that it's a demon, which is really just a guy who's been irradiated to the point where he's growing a horn, and he's dying, and looks and feels awful. Yeah, and they're in front of these giant dandelions, which is a really cool image, they show you them for a while before they get close, and you're like, are those big or are they small? And then you see it, they're huge. Yeah, and then you're like, oh, wait, they're like 15 feet tall. Another great effect, like, those look like totally real dandelions. This whole dream is just a, like a long speech, essentially. Yeah, it's the demon telling his woes. Again, it really does feel like it's something that could have just been given to the businessman character in the previous dream. Yeah, why are two of them about nuclear <laughs> apocalypse? Two out of eight? It's the same problem as the peach orchard. Like, the weeping demon is just retreading the exact same thing in a slightly different way, but it's made less effective because of what preceded it. And because this is a linear movie, you have to go from one to the next. So it's like, oh, okay. And then this one just drags for a long time. And, like, it has great images in it, but I'm like, I got this in the last couple minutes. 
The Weeping Demon talks of like the sociology of the post-apocalypse world where two horned demons eat one horned demons, which I didn't really know what that was about, but that's what's up. He did have a very cool line that was like, even in hell, there's a class structure. The curse of this world is that the demons are in eternal agony and they can't die unless they are fortunate enough to be eaten by someone else. They are repenting for all the evil they committed because this guy drove up food prices by like destroying food. He was a farmer who just did basic capitalist things like destroying food instead of giving it away. They hear moaning in the distance and he's like, oh, you want to see this? It's the weeping demons. And it's very upsetting. They look down into a valley. There's like these two pools of red acid water. Blood. And there's just a crowd of demons around them screaming in agony. And then he's like, oh, I'm, then they're definitely going to eat me unless I eat you. And then he starts chasing them and then we fade out. And it's like, oh, cool. And then we're going to have a major vibe change with Dream 8, Village of the Watermills, which I think is quite nice. I like this one a lot. It was very nice. Another very, like, just feels like Kurosawa himself talking to us. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, you could call this one preachy. More so than I think any other one. Yeah, a lot of them are preachy, but this one's very preachy. And that's fine. The main character now, he's walking through this village. It's a very idyllic village. It's like perfect, pre-industrial. He encounters an old man played by Chishu Ryu, who has been, you know, in a couple of these. This is one of his last roles. I mean, he was playing characters that were fathers whose daughters were old enough to marry someone in the 1950s. So the fact that he's doing stuff in 1990 is wild. It does feel like a good Kurosawa surrogate now. It's like, all right, this is the end of my life. I'm very old, and I just wish that people could be happy, and we destroy good things for convenience, and we pollute, and we do all this. And it's like, yeah, you're absolutely right. I'm willing to listen to you because you're Chishu Ryu. Yeah, no, it was great to see him. The world that he lives in, this, like, idealized village, is very pretty. They only use trees that have already fallen down. They don't need electricity, because why would they? Yeah, we didn't need it before, so why we need it now? We just have the water mills. Yeah, we have cows and horses. They tend to the fields. It seems really... I would like to live there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I would have to work hard enough to earn my stay or whatever, but, you know, he points out that people say life is miserable, but maybe they've just made it miserable. Like, life like this is actually quite nice and worth living. You see children putting flowers on a stone in the beginning, and the guy asks about it, and he's like, oh, uh, a weary traveler died there long ago, and now everyone puts flowers on the stone, and some people don't even know why. It's a tradition that's gone on so long that we don't even remember why we do it. And then he hears a funeral parade off in the distance, and then there's the very lively and joyous funeral parade with some pretty catchy music, which is nice. It goes on a while. It's really a full circle, the same thing as the first dream, Sunshine Through the Rain, with the fox wedding. Now we're getting a funeral, and it's moving in the exact opposite direction. I feel like that's definitely intentional. The fox parade was moving screen right to screen left. Now we have the funeral moving from screen left to screen right. But it feels more joyous. It's a celebration of life. He's going to put his own flower on that rock to honor their tradition. Then we're just going to have the credits play over some beautiful footage of plants underwater. Yeah, some very like Tarkovsky-ish plants underwater <laughs> stuff. And yeah, that's the whole movie. It, it, it's, yeah, it's that. <laughs> it's, sure is. It sure is eight vignettes. That was it. We described it in a lot of detail, considering how much there was. I won't say don't see this movie, but I would maybe say just listen to this podcast because you'll get the same vibe. Yeah, I mean, the imagery is beautiful if you're into that kind of thing. I mean, I assume you've already seen it if you're listening. I don't know. I liked it. Certainly, I, I wouldn't recommend this one to everyone. I liked it too, but it's not anywhere near my top. Yeah, it's the kind of film that I personally enjoy, despite recognizing that it's maybe not all that good as a film. What was your favorite shot from it? The shot that I picked was the classic one, is the boy walking towards the rainbow in the valley. Because I was like, oh, this is just so pretty. Like, Carly Stock's beautiful, a little boy in the valley looks beautiful. 
I just picked it because it was really nice. The main redeeming thing of this movie is that it is very pretty. My favorite was one of the Van Gogh superimposition shots where the main character was running through the paintings. I specifically chose the one where he's running through Van Gogh's The Large Plane Trees painting because that's the one where he goes behind a tree and he also like steps over a rock or something and kind of goes down a little bit. I think it's very technically impressive. The fact that we're in the 90s now, it is like more possible, but it's still a pretty mind-blowing shot to just see him do it. He does different things with all of them, but this one in particular, it's they're just flexing all this new special effects technology they have. If you made this right now, it would basically look exactly the same. He made it look as good as physically possible even today. So I really, really liked that one. I thought that was a really strong thing from the strongest segment, I think, personally. I really, really took that one. Yeah, I really liked the emotional hook of the tunnel. Like, that really got to me. But, you know, I, I, I liked a lot of them. <laughs> Not all of them. Overall, Dreams is, like... I really love that it exists, but it's definitely not one that I really go to much or want to go to that much because it's really uneven. Yeah, I would watch some of these. I feel like I would watch the last one again just to feel cozy, but like I never want to see the Weeping Demon one again in my life. Yeah, like I would put on specific ones, but I would definitely fast forward through a couple of these or fast forward through certain parts of some of them. Because like I said, if this movie was 30 minutes shorter, can you imagine how much more fun it would be? Yeah, it could have been tighter. Yeah. It would be more enjoyable to watch rather than intellectually interesting to watch. Because I do really like, again, the idea of a filmmaker transposing their subconscious psyche onto the screen and just let him run wild, give him money, let him do whatever. I think it's a great idea, but not perfect execution. Ultimately, I am going to give it a 7. I think it's good, but flawed. I'm going to try and rank the dreams. I don't know if you're going to do the same. But what I'm going to say is my favorite is Crows. Next, I'm going to say Mount Fuji in red. Then I'm going to say The Tunnel. After that, I'm going to say Village of the Watermills. Next, Sunshine Through the Rain, the first one, because I feel like that set the tone and it is really pretty. The next two I'm going to give to the ones that were kind of like ripoffs of the ones that came before that would have been stronger on their own if they hadn't preceded ones that basically treaded on the same territory, which is The Weeping Demon and then The Peach Orchard. And then at the bottom, I'm going to put the blizzard because I just didn't like that one. I just was really bored. It didn't feel like a dream. It just felt like a normal story that I didn't like. Okay. I give it an eight. I liked a lot of it. The ones I didn't like weren't enough to drag it further down than less than an eight. I won't give a full ranking, but I will say I liked the blizzard a lot more than you did. The tunnel might be my favorite. I thought the sunshine and the peach orchard are both like very good, even though they're very repetitive of each other. Crows and Village of the Watermill is very good. I just didn't care for Mount Fuji and Red or the Weeping Demon at all. And I don't want to see them again. I, I didn't like them, even if the message was good or whatever. I don't know. I didn't care for them one bit. If we were watching this movie together, we'd be fighting over the remote constantly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> to each their own. I'm sure you listening also have your own opinions of them all. But that's what it is. You know, it's his personal thing. That's the thing about a lot of abstract art can be very personal. I, I like abstract art, but you can take from it whatever you can. And if you don't get anything from it, that's fine. It's no one's fault for not enjoying Kurosawa's dreams because they're his dreams. This is made for him. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and you know, if it's 1990, if you've been in the film game, you've been 80 years old, do whatever you want. I am extremely excited for a movie that is kind of hard to find, but next week we're going to be talking about Rhapsody in August, our penultimate film, and the only Kurosawa film I have not seen. Really? Ooh. The only one left. I've seen Matadayo, and now we're at the end of our long journey. Yeah. I've never seen Rhapsody in August before. I really hope the DVD I bought works. I'll find out soon. Good luck to the listener for finding it themselves. 
Who knows? We'll see. Yeah, for some reason, you can't really rent it or stream it anywhere. Don't know why. I'll take that as an encouraging sign instead of a bad one. Why is this movie being suppressed? Yeah. Check in with us next week and we're going to find out. We'll let you know. Yeah, we'll find the truth. <laughs> <laughs>